Amen. Great to see you this morning. If you want to flip in your Bible to Acts chapter 2, that's where we'll start. Acts chapter 2. Okay, back in the fall, we spent a lot of time in the book of Acts and specifically in Acts chapter 2. Um, but this morning, I, wa- I want to show you just one little phrase in Acts 2 that I, I want to kind of camp out on to kind of launch us into where we're going today. And so Acts chapter 2, that's where we're starting. And here's what you're going to find in Acts chapter 2. Uh, when, when the chapter starts, I mean, Benny Hinn and his entourage just walked in the room. I mean, the, the people are in a room, they're waiting for the Spirit of God, and I'm telling you, all heck breaks loose. I mean, people are flying all across this room, right? And so, uh, so you've got the Holy Spirit comes down, fills the room, sounds like a rushing wind. I mean, you've got a, a pretty crazy scene playing itself out. And then here's the first thing that happens when the people of God are filled with the Spirit of God. Verse 14 in Acts chapter 2. Peter stands up, he kind of silences the crowd, and he addresses them with the gospel. Okay, so the first thing you have happen when people are filled with the Spirit is they start talking about the gospel. Okay, now he starts to unpack the gospel, and and it gets a little bit offensive right off the get-go. Okay, so come on down to verse uh, 22. So I, I want you to see this, though. People of God are filled with the Spirit of God, and they start to proclaim the message of God. They don't rely on, look how I treat my wife, although we should treat our wives well. Look how I treat my husband. I bought him a flower. I mean, it's, it's, it's not watch how I take care of the dog or how I take the cat to the pound or whatever. It's not that, all right? It, it's, it's proclaiming the gospel. Okay? That, that's what the Spirit of God does in us. Okay, so verse 22, it starts to get a little bit personal here. He's looking at the, the Jewish people, and he says this, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, the man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Verse 23, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Here's the personal part. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. I mean, he just looked at a group of people and just said, I don't know if you know this, but you're murderers. That's what you are. That's what you just did here. You just murdered Jesus. Okay, so it gets really personal really quick. And so, now, and here's just the, the application of that real quick. Is that the, the message of Jesus, the gospel, is always going to have an offensive edge to it. Because here's where the gospel, at some point, this has to be talked about. That we are hopelessly sinful people. That we, just like these Jewish people, crucified Jesus with our sins. Right? And so there's always going to be a sharp edge to the gospel that pierces hearts. So, so Peter, he is throwing these gospel arrows at him. And then verse 24, he says, it doesn't stop with your hopelessly sinful. Okay? It doesn't stop with your murderer. It keeps going. Verse 24, but God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by them. Jesus to be held by them. So it doesn't end with the cross. It doesn't end with your murderer. It, it keeps going that Jesus has been raised from the dead, that it doesn't stop there. It keeps going to a resurrected God. Okay, now it's going to reach a climax in verse 36. And here's what, here's kind of the climactic point in the sermon goes like this. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Okay, so Peter backs up. Here's the climatic point that this Jesus, he is God and Savior, King and Redeemer, that that's our Jesus. He is all of that. So he is the just judge and he is the justifier. Okay, so here's the thing. When the people of God are filled with the Spirit of God, we have a responsibility to proclaim that. 
to say that, to speak that. Our life and lips have to say Jesus is King and Savior. He is the hope, period. Okay, so now I, I want to just keep throwing this back on you because I think we as people need to hear this. That we have a gospel obligation. Paul says it's an eager, eager obligation in Romans 1. To proclaim the gospel. If you're depending on an event to be your gospel proclamation, you're not being obedient to Scripture. If the way you proclaim the gospel is only, come with me to this, that's not being obedient to Scripture. Okay, so there is a responsibility for us personally to have the gospel in our life, on our lips. Okay, now, the results of the gospel are not in our control. We don't control how people respond to them. Like, I love the book of Isaiah because God looks at Isaiah and says, okay, you're going to be my man. I'm sending you out. But Isaiah, no one's going to listen to you. I mean, that would be an encouraging word, right? Okay, I'm with you, God. No one's going to pay attention. So you preach, you do your thing, you be responsible to do your role, but nobody's going to listen. Okay, so the results are not in our control, but we have a gospel obligation for the gospel to be on our lips. Okay, now, I want to show you how these people respond. This is a little better than Isaiah's circumstances, right? And so here's how they respond. Verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They were convicted. So, So let me just make this quick point. That preaching, or the, and when I say preaching here, the gospel on our lips, I'm not just talking about a monologue. I'm not just talking about you standing up in front of a people, quieting the crowd and addressing them. I'm talking about you having people into your home and you're talking about the gospel. And so what sustains gospel talk is not humor. I mean, it doesn't really matter how humorous I am up here. I mean, it might help in keeping you engaged every now and then, but that's not what what we're depending on in this place. My reason and even my logic in presenting whatever I'm, that's really not the thing that's going to do it. I mean, we should be faithful to be biblical. We should be faithful to think about good arguments. We should be faithful to be logical in what we believe. But when you're sitting across the dinner table and you start talking about the gospel, at the end of the day, those things are great and good. We should do them, but we are dependent upon the Spirit of God to cut people's heart. We're dependent upon that. In a morning like this, I am not dependent upon my words. I want to be faithful with them, but I am totally dependent upon the Spirit of God moving in you, right? And so the gospel cuts these people to the heart, and then here's what they say to Peter. They said to Peter with the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Now, when you're sitting across the table and you're talking the gospel, that's what you want to hear right there, right? What do we need to do? Now, let me stop and say, what, how would you respond to that? Like, wh- how does your conversation go there? What do I need to do? I'm in. Like, I am full-blown. I believe it. So what needs to happen now? Okay, this is, what, this is how Peter responds. And you might underline, circle, highlight, however you want to do that, two words here. And Peter said to them, repent, underline, and be baptized, underline, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you and for your children um, who, are, who are far off. And then here's going to be our inclusion into this 2,000 years later. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word repented and were baptized. 
Then last phrase, they were added to that day about 3,000 souls. Okay, so, so here's what I want you to see there. Just kind of jump back up. I think this is verse 38. His response is, repent and be baptized. Both of them. You don't really have like a segregation there. Okay, now, if you grew up in church, I think it's just always good to help you see that you're a little bit weird. And, and here's what I mean by that. I mean, j- just imagine you talking to yourself, but imagining yourself not having any biblical foundation at all. Like you don't know any, you have no idea what the Bible says. And imagine you coming up to yourself and saying, hey, I know this may sound crazy, but I really believe Jesus was born of a virgin. Now, how would you respond to yourself? I mean, does that not sound a little bit abnormal? Okay, if you're going to read your Bible, you're going to go up to somebody and you're going to say, this guy named Jonah, I know this sounds crazy. He was literally swallowed by a big fish, didn't die. The fish vomited him up somewhere near a beach. He walks away. I mean, I'm just saying that sounds a little weird, right? Okay, think about the resurrection. So Jesus is brutally beaten, nailed to a cross to finish him. I mean, people don't just walk away from that with a couple of bruises or a scratch or two. I mean, people, I mean, that, that's a bad deal right there. Okay. And we believe he's resurrected. Right? Okay. So I'm just saying this, that it sounds a little bit weird. Like you just got to acknowledge that we're a little bit weird. Right? I mean, just a little. Okay. Now loop baptism into that. Here's what we're telling people. It's not just repent. It's not just believe. I mean, that, that is the deal, but that's not where it stops. Then you get your white robe on, you get in some water, and they dunk you into it. I mean, is that not kind of weird? Just a little bit. Okay, now here's what I want to just argue kind of with you, though, this morning. Uh, on this side of, this is like the, I mean, this is the first step in obedience, like, if you start reading through the book of Acts, like it doesn't make any sense for, like, if you read forward in the book of Acts, somebody to believe in Jesus and not be grafted into the body of Christ. And we've kind of made that point over and over the last few months, that you believe in Jesus and you become a part of the local body, part of the universal body. Okay, in the same way, it doesn't make any sense biblically to say, I love Jesus. And not have, there's your repentance piece, and not have this public declaration. And that's what baptism is. It's a public declaration that I belong to Jesus. And it makes no sense in the New Testament. There's not a category for people in the New Testament who say, I belong to Jesus and have not publicly identified themselves with Jesus. So although in our culture, it has become a thing of preference, the depth and the beauty of baptism has kind of been ripped away from it. Although it's become a preference to many in kind of Christianity, it is precious to Jesus. Believer unbaptized makes no biblical sense. Like those two words together, it's like saying tall jockey, right? Just don't go. It's like saying, uh, micro, this is for the Apple people in here, Microsoft works. Really? Right? I mean, is that really true? Right? Okay, so, so like the two words don't belong together in the New Testament. Unbaptized believer is an oxymoron in the New Testament. There's no category for it. It is a precious thing in the Bible. It is an important thing. It's got depth and beauty to it in the scriptures. It is this public declaration that 
I have drawn the line in the sand and I belong to that guy, to that God. That's where my allegiance is. Okay, so, so here's what I want to do this morning. And, well, actually, let me give you this quote in the New Testament. This would be a New Testament circle from a commentator on how important this step was. In New Testament world, first century world, this was a massive step. And look at this quote up on the screen. It was a declaration that the believer was identifying himself with a group of people who were called Christians. To identify yourself with those who were called Christians meant persecution, maybe even death in the New Testament. It meant being ostracized from your, family, uh, from your family, shunned by your friends. And the one act that was the final declaration of this identification was baptism. The public declaration, I belong to Jesus. As long as a man was gathered with Christians, he was tolerated. But once he submitted to baptism, he declared to the world, I belong to this group and to that God. And immediately he was persecuted, hated, and even despised. Okay, so I'm just saying this. It was a massive move in the first century world. A precious movement. A precious act. Okay, so here's what I want to do this morning. I want to try to unfold and kind of unpack five questions that kind of revolve around this issue of baptism. And they're going to kind of go in order of of maybe importance. Where the first two would be close-handed things that we would probably go to war over, right? Things that we would probably fight about. But the, the other three would be open-handed. We can be in the same church together. We can love each other, be in the home, same home group together. We can serve side by side and all get along just fine. They're open-handed issues, not dividing issues in any way, shape, or form. Okay, so, so let's kind of unpack these five questions that re- revolve around this, this central act of baptism. I mean, this is a beautiful, has depth sort of an act. Okay, so to do this, there's not like a concise passage in Scripture that's going to unfold and unpack baptism for us. So we're going to have to back up and kind of survey the New Testament to get at the meaning of baptism in the New Testament. Okay, so here's question number one. Kind of an order of importance here. First two are massively important. Question one, why should I be baptized? Okay, just the simple question of why? I mean, what's the purpose of that? Okay, so if you want to flip to Matthew chapter 3 real quick, Matthew 3. If you don't want to, it's going to be on the screen for you either way. It's just fine. Okay, so in Matthew 3, you've got John. He is in the baptism mode, right? He is, he is preaching in, in verse 2 of Matthew 3. He is preaching, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. And then he's saying, be baptized. Okay, so you've got John in the Jordan River, and he is baptizing people. Okay, and then this is what happens in Matthew 3, 13. And just kind of put yourself in John's shoes here. Um, like he is about to um, jump into the Jordan. He's there baptizing when Jesus shows up. Okay, so why should he be baptized? Because it's going to follow this example of what Jesus laid out for us. So Jesus shows up in, in Matthew three thirteen. Here's what he says. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. And this is how the kind of the dialogue goes down. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to to me? Verse 15. But Jesus answered him, let it be so now for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. Like I kind of see that little dialogue kind of like you and your wife. You're going out to dinner. Where do you want to eat? I don't know. Where do you want to eat? I'm turning this car around if you don't tell me where you want to eat. We are about to go back home right now. 
Okay, that's kind of this dialogue going on. You're, no, you're going to baptize me. Okay, so you get the picture here. So he consents, and then verse 16. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And, we, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. Verse 17. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So you've got baptism. And you've got this example of Jesus. This is how Jesus started his ministry. It was the inauguration of his three-year sprint. This is how it began. You've got the whole Trinity there, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. This is the example. Like, this, this is what Christ did. This is how he began. So you've got the example of Christ, maybe a first answer to the, the why question. But here's the most important answer. Number two. Is it also, it's not just an example issue, it's an obedience issue. We are baptized to obey the command of Scripture, to obey Jesus. Not just an, an example thing, but it's an obe- baptism is an obedience issue. Okay, so Matthew chapter 28, I mean, this is a coffee cup verse. I mean, this is everywhere. Matthew 28, you've got the Great Commission. This is how this goes. Starts off like this in verse 18, and Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth have been given to me. Verse 19, here comes the command. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Now notice the next phrase. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So I just want to draw your attention to this fact. That we are not called just to make disciples. That is not the end game. We are called to make baptized disciples. That's the command. The first thing we've got to teach people is baptize disciples, not just disciples. Okay, so, so that, that, here comes the command here. Okay, and this is why you have this practice all throughout the New Testament. The reason in, in Acts chapter 2, Peter's going to get up and preach. They're going to say, okay, what do I do? He's going to say, repent and be baptized. The reason he does that, the reason he commands it, is because Jesus has commanded him to command it. So, so it falls in line with the command. So it's not a preference issue. This is an obedience issue. Okay, so it's not a when you're comfortable issue. It's not a, it is a, I'm obedient because Jesus has told me to do this issue. Okay, so it's a command. Okay, so that is the most important why issue there. Okay, now here, here might be a third answer though. is to unite to the body of Christ. In Ephesians chapter 4, and like I said, we're having to give a summary of some some various New Testament passages here. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul is making his case for um, kind of unity in the church. So he starts off Ephesians, he's saying this, man, I want you to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, in humility, in patience. Walk worthy of the gospel by which you have been called. And then he's going to say this at the end of that. Um, He's going to say, in unity. Be eager to maintain unity. And isn't unity a precious thing? I mean, think about your work environment. Isn't unity a great thing? I mean, it's a precious thing if you've got that in a work environment. Think about that in your family. If you've got some rebellious teenagers, you know what I'm talking about, right? I mean, that, that can really wreck a home in a hurry. Isn't unity a precious thing in a home? Okay, and isn't it precious within a church? Is there anything more devastating to see a church totally fragment? I mean, is that not a damaging thing, one, to the name of God, and two, to the people of God in the midst of it? That hurts. So he's saying, walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, maintain unity. Okay, now in verse 4, he gives the reason for that. 
And look at what he says here. Ephesians 4, verse 4. It's going to be on the screen for you. Here's his basis for unity in a church. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. And here comes the basis of unity. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Okay, make sure you have a big smile on your face right now. And like look to the person, maybe to your right and to your left. And and here's here's what Paul's saying. You don't just get God. Paul's saying with a big smile, you also get us, right? Isn't that a little bit scary? Like look at that person to your right. That's a little bit scary, right? It's not just God. It is also that person you're beside. That's who you get when you sign across the line with Jesus. You get not only God, you get the people of God. Okay, now isn't that interesting when you've got a 65-year-old and a 6-year-old in the same room? When you've got a 22-year-old that dresses hole in his jeans, t-shirt, guy walks in with a suit. Isn't that interesting? Like, how do you maintain unity in the midst of that? When you've got this guy that says, hymns are the way to do it. And then you've got this guy who he doesn't even know a hymn, right? And here's Paul's answer. It is the umbrella by which we can all be in the same room is because we have one Lord. Because we have one faith. And then look at where he puts baptism and one baptism. You know what's united the people of God for 2,000 years? Is the fact that once they got Jesus, they publicly identified themselves with Jesus and the people of God. It has always been the entrance into the body. It unites us to the body. Okay, so why? Because um, it's an example of Jesus. It's a command of, of Jesus. And that it unites us into the body. Okay, so th- that's your why. And that's important. That's a close-handed, Jesus commands it. So we've got to do this thing. Okay, now here's the second one. Second question. What's the meaning of baptism? Okay, another massively important close-handed issue. What does it mean? Okay, so and I'm saying this with humility. You know, like if somebody comes up to you and says, your mom's ugly, you want to fight them right then? Now, here's what I've noticed. That sometimes with baptism, people kind of have that same, bro, you talking, I mean, it's, it's instantly that. It's like you're personally attacking them with the baptism issue. And so I, like, I, I want you to know that like what I'm saying here, I want to say boldly, but I'm saying with a humble heart. So I just want you to hear that. And so with that, like, I, I want to make this comment. That baptism does not in any way, shape, or form determine your salvation. It's not a salvation issue. Okay, now this is going to be a major line of difference between us and our Catholic friends. If you've grown up in a Catholic background, here's the official teaching of the Catholic Church. That when you are baptized is officially when you are regenerated. When you are saved. It imparts saving grace. And so, um, okay, so the question becomes is why would they teach that? Why would we teach this? Okay, now, I think this is an interesting observation with the why is the difference there. I heard a guy make this, this observation the other day that the, the denominations or the, the groups that would teach this is a salvation issue typically don't promote reading the Bible. Typically, they're never going to encourage you to read your scriptures. And I think there's a direct correlation because here's what's really easy to do when people don't read their scripture. It's really easy for the church to become the authority, right? So it's really easy if people aren't reading their scriptures to say, this is how it is and do it this way. 
Okay, now let me just publicly say that we are not the final authority here. I want to be real clear that we believe that the scriptures are the final authority. We aren't out for the opinion of man, but for the biblical definition, right? And so we're going to hold up the scripture and say, it's not what, it's not my opinion on this thing. It's not the way I'm saying, we're going after what the Bible says about it. And so I think you've got a direct correlation there. And why this gets confusing is because when you don't read the scriptures, then whatever they say just kind of comes your thing. Okay, so now, now with that said, I think there's also a lot of confusion even in places that teach it well. And, and here's been numerous conversations for me. Um, I'll walk up to somebody and, and kind of this conversation goes like this. Okay, well, tell me about how God has worked in your life. Kind of walk me through this process. And here's the first thing they go to when they think of salvation. Well, I was baptized when I was eight years old. First thing they say. This is like the first response back. Okay, how did God work in your life? Baptized, eight. Done. Check it off. I've got the plaque in my room. They sent me the little certificate. Got the signature from the pastor. Grandma signed it. Mom, everybody signed it. I am good to go, right? And so I think there's still a lot of confusion even in our circles. People who I think teach it well that there's, there's this kind of hidden assumption that that's when it happened. That this is like the defining thing here. Okay, so I just want to say this again just as clearly as I can. That baptism is not a saving issue. It is an obedience issue after salvation. And so we are saved through grace alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. Okay, that's where salvation is. And we rip the heart out of the gospel when we add anything to that. Grace through faith. Okay, so with that said, let me give you, I think, three things that kind of revolve around baptism on the meaning side of it. That it's a celebration of the gospel. I mean, that's what baptism does. It lifts up and celebrates the gospel of what Christ has done. Okay, now this is the picture in Romans chapter 6. I'm just going to read this so you can flip there later. Um, Paul's going to say this in Romans 6 verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Are we to take advantage of grace? And Paul's response is by no means, no, we're not supposed to. It's impossible to do that. And here he's going to unfold why. How can you who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried with him by baptism and death in order that just as Christ was raised from the, from, from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So it's a gospel celebration. Baptism is this beautiful time when the people of God surround a man or woman of God as we celebrate the work of the gospel in their life. That the sinless Savior has died as their substitute. And he has raised them, united them with Christ to walk in newness of life. We get to celebrate that. The baptism is a celebratory, a sacred tradition in Christianity. It's a sacred celebration. Okay, now, now Romans is also going to add to that. It's not only a sacred celebration, it's a sacred illustration. It's an illustration of the gospel. Okay, this is kind of the picture of Romans, that, that you're buried and that you're raised. It's this picture of what has happened internally. It's a public show of an internal action. So I've got uh, two pictures of my, or a picture of my kids there. That's Hannah, that's Caleb, Christmas right there. Okay, now, now let me ask this question. Is that Hannah and Caleb? Don't answer. It's kind of a trick question. All right. And, and so the answer is it's not them. That's a representation of them. That's a picture. I mean, you can 
kind of throw around a picture. You can throw it in the trash. You can do whatever you want. It's a picture, though. It's a visible representation. Like, the reality is, they're probably running over there tearing up the preschool area right now, right? And Caleb is probably breaking glass with his cry over there, right? That, that's, what, that's them over there. This is a representation of them. Just like baptism is not the gospel. You're not redeemed by baptism. You aren't saved by baptism. It is a physical representation of what has already happened in the heart of a follower of Jesus. It's an illustration of the gospel. So, okay, take the illustration here. A guy's going to you're going to do the whole white robe or, you know, swimsuit thing. You're going to get into a pool of water. Already weird, I know. Okay, it gets worse. They're going to get you and they're going to dunk you under the water. Okay, this is the picture of you dying to your sin. This is the picture of God dying as your substitute. This is the beautiful illustration of the gospel that Jesus died on the cross to bury your sin, to nail your sin to the cross. So they hold you under the water. If you're really bad, they hold you under there a little bit longer. If you're really, really bad, they shake you a couple of times, right? And so then you're raised. It's the picture of you being raised, united with Christ, you walking in newness of life, the resurrected life. I mean, that's the visible representation, illustration of the gospel truth, right? It's a beautiful illustration of the gospel. Okay, and and maybe one more to throw on to that is it's not only a celebration and an illustration, it is a great proclamation of the gospel. I I want you to think about this one. Okay, so this is how it plays out here. We'll roll in a portable baptistry. Okay, it'll be front and center. People will crawl into the water, get dunked, come out of the water. And you know what that is? That is a proclamation to the church of the gospel. It's a reminder to the church of the gospel. And can I just tell you that you need to be reminded of it? If you have been battling with sin, which I know a lot of us in here are, and we have a great desire at the deepest level to walk in holiness, but man, we have got these temporal battles that are just raging. Man, you need to be reminded of the gospel for hope. That your sins, past, present, and future, were all buried. Isn't that a beautiful reminder of that? It's a proclamation of the gospel to the church. And it's a beautiful proclamation of the gospel to the world. Man, here's what I encourage people who get baptized to do. You set up a PA system in your neighborhood and you make sure every person in your neighborhood knows I'm getting baptized on Sunday and they're invited, right? I mean, you get your contact list. You send out emails to everybody you know. I mean, you invite the family. You invite your coworkers. You invite everybody you can think of to watch a proclamation of the gospel. It's you saying as you are buried with Christ, united with Christ, he is the hope of the world. It's your public proclamation of that. Okay, so these are the close-handed issues. These are the issues that if we don't agree on, we've got problems, right? I mean, these are the issues. If, if we believe this is where you're saved, we've got a massive problem here. Okay, so these are the close-handed. Now, um, I, we're going to kind of unpack really quickly three more questions. And these questions, here's what I hate about them, is some of my heroes in Christian history fall in different places than I do. I hate that. I hate looking back at people that I'm like, I love, I, want, I, lo- I would name my kid after that guy. And, but we fall in different places on this issue. 
on several of these questions. And so, but like, here's what I'm saying with these questions. We can, they're open-handed. We can live together here just fine. We can serve side by side just fine. I'm just going to spend the rest of our time together trying to convince you otherwise. All right. So here we go. Question number three, how should I be baptized? So that's maybe the how question. Okay. And here's my response to that, that the most biblical way to be baptized is immersion. I think the New Testament teaches the most biblical way is immersion. Okay, if you just look at the word baptism, it's the Greek word baptizo. Okay, it's a common, it's a common Greek word. It's not a special religious word. It's a common Greek word that had a wide range of meaning. They might use it from anything to a ship baptizoing, being sunk, to dipping like cloth in a dye to stain it, to being immersed, submerged. It, it has kind of across all of those meanings, being washed, has all of those meanings kind of carried with it in the Greek. Okay, so let me kind of give you maybe two or three reasons why I think it's the bi- most biblical way. Number one is Jesus was baptized that way. If you look in Mark chapter one, John is baptizing. And John is called John the Baptist, not because he was the first Baptist. Okay, I just want to clear that up. Um, He's called John the Baptist because he is baptizing people. It's literally like saying John the baptizer, not the Baptist. So he is John the dipper, John the sinker, John the immerser. Okay, that's who he is. So he's in the river and he's doing that to people. So Jesus walks up to him and in Mark chapter 1, I I want you to see how the Bible describes Jesus' baptism here. In Mark chapter 1 it says, And when he came up out of the water... Immediately he saw the heavens being torn open, and we kind of read that same kind of passage in, in Matthew. But the illustration is this. I don't know that it's really possible if somebody just kind of throws a drop on you to come up out of the water. You know what I'm saying? I, I don't know if it's possible with a drop. And so I think that the picture there is I have been immersed and I'm coming out of the water. I think that's the picture of, of what's happening there. Okay, so the same thing happens with New Testament church leaders. It's the same sort of an imagery. In Acts chapter 8, you've got Philip. He has preached to an Ethiopian eunuch, right? And so the, the guy's just said, I'm in. Let's do this. And, and then this is the next thing the guy says. They're traveling down the road. He says, hey, there's a body of water. What would keep me from being baptized? They jump into the water. Verse, I think, 38 or 39 in Acts chapter 8. Same wording is used. He came up out of the water. Hard to come out of a drop. You just kind of, you know, I mean, you don't really come out of a drop, though. You know what I'm saying? So he's coming up out of the water. They jump in the water, come up out of the water. Okay. And then uh, probably I think even the most important one, though, is just to think of the imagery. I think immersion is the best imagery of the gospel. Buried with Christ underwater, dead, in the tomb, sealed coffin, raised with Christ, united with Christ, freed to live for the glory of God. Right? I I think it's the best imagery of the gospel. Okay. Next question. And let let me just address this real quick on on this issue. So what what if you were sprinkled? And so here would be my encouragement to you. It's not a close handed issue here. It's not. Like, I don't think it's a dividing issue. I don't think it's any of those things. I would just encourage you to this. Like, if it were me, I would want the best picture being represented with, with my public declaration. And so I would encourage you to jump in. Like, I think it'd be a great gospel celebration for your family, for us to get to see that, to be reminded of that. Okay, next question. Question four, and we'll, we'll kind of hurry through these last two. Who should be baptized? So you've got the who question. 
Okay, now here, here's the response to that. And there's been hundreds of years of debate on this issue. Um, the who question, I would respond this way. Everyone who has been born again, keyword being again, not everyone born not infants, not you. I mean, it's born again, the spiritual rebirth. When God comes into our heart, renews it, born again. Okay, now, this is where, I mean, some of my heroes, they fall in different places. And so I want to kind of give you a, re, a one-minute recap of several hundred years of debate here. And so this is just kind of be my one-minute try at this. If you go pre-Reformation, here's what you have. By and large, the state and, and religion is like this. So if you're born in, let's just say, modern-day Germany, in, in modern-day, or kind of that, that land, modern-day Germany, if, you, if that land believed in Christianity, when you were born there, you automatically, I mean, you're a Christian. That's what you're born into it. I mean, you're not born into the kingdom, but you're born into to that. And so it kind of started to make sense. And you start to take the authority of Scripture out, it started to make sense that we'll just kind of do it this way. I mean, it kind of makes sense when you're born there, you got that. So, well, okay, so you've got that picture playing out. Post-Reformation, here's what um, Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, these guys did. They recovered, it is grace alone and faith alone. That's how we're saved. And with that, you kind of have this recovery of, it's not, you're not born into it. You've got to be born again to get it. You, it's grace through faith. Okay, now the question is, is why do these guys stick with it? I mean, Luther was one of the biggest defenders of infant baptism. And so I, I'm going to give you three just quick reasons here. I think one could be that I, when you're in tradition, you can be blinded by it really easily. So however you grew up, probably, I mean, just know that you've probably got some blind spots that are wrapped around that in some way, shape, or form. And so it's really easy to get sucked into that. Um, this would be probably the biggest issue here is that you've got, this is where the argument really lies, is that you've got kind of this covenantal view of how things work out. So you've got the Old Testament covenant, circumcision, is just the New Testament equivalent to baptism. So you've got kind of this, this covenantal issue working out. There's just a continuity between the two. And I think this is really where the issue lies. That the, the Old Covenant is represented circumcision, infants do it, New Covenant, baptism represented kind of the same thing. So you, why not do it as infants too? So you've got that issue working itself out. So here's how I'd respond to that is, the, okay, the covenantal side is baptism and circumcision, the exact same thing. And I would say there's similarities, but they're not the exact same thing. You've got no New Testament passage that is going to clearly teach infant baptism. There's times when households are baptized, but you've got to assume infants are in there to believe it's teaching infant baptism. So I don't think there's any clear New Testament teaching. And on the other side of that, I think there's clear New Testament teaching that believers believe and then they're baptized. Colossians 2, I think, is one of like the daggers that, that kind of run after and stab the idea of infant baptism. Um, and Colossians 2 goes like this, verse 11. It's going to be on the screen for you. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Verse 12, here it comes. Having been buried with him in baptism, so you're, you're baptized, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So I think this is the obstacle to infant baptism is you've got baptism linked to faith. I mean, those two are, are faith it is what precedes this idea of baptism. And so it's really hard for an infant to say, I'm, I'm saved. I'm, I, they don't, you can't really, I mean, I've got a three-month, he doesn't really have that going yet, right? 
And so it's really hard to place your faith in something as a three-month-old. And so you've got the link there that um, where there is continuity, like you've got an Old Testament thing, circumcision, done by, by laying on of hands with a knife, and that's as graphic as I'm going to get, right? I mean, it makes me sweat to think about that. And so then you've got this New Testament thing of baptism, that this inner circumcision of the heart. One is physical, one is spiritual. One is born into a physical people of God. One is born into the, the spiritual kingdom of God. So there is continuity, but there's also some discontinuity there, right? Okay, so faith is the issue underneath it. Okay, so last question, and then, then we're out. Question five is, when should I be baptized? And kind of two quick responses to that. Number one, as soon as you place your faith in Jesus, I think baptism follows. Soon. You place your faith in Jesus, here comes baptism. Okay, now this is the interesting phenomenon that I've noticed in ministry circles. Is, and I don't know how many times this conversation has happened. I, like, in the service, something kind of comes up about baptism. Somebody walks up to me and says, okay, let's do this. I'm in. I want to get baptized. So I kind of ask for their story. Well, kind of walk me through what's happening here. And here's, I, I, and this has been numerous conversations. First thing they'll rattle back off is, well, I've been baptized four times already. Okay. And you ought to be clean, you know? I mean, they have definitely shaken some things while they've got you down there, right? And so, um, so I, I want to just kind of make this quick point here that the Bible teaches repentance, but not rebaptism. You know what I'm saying? And so here's what I think can happen if we're not really careful. That's why we've got to be really careful to clearly define what saving faith is. That I I think you can really lead people to to a lot of confusion here. Imagine a a VBS, right? Where you've got a room full of six-year-olds. And and this is how you present the gospel. If you want Jesus, raise your hand. I mean, if you want to see your parents when you die, you want streets of gold, there's probably going to be Hannah Montana on the TV 24-7. If you want Jesus, hand in the air. I mean, what fifth grader isn't raising, or, you know, come on, who isn't, you know? And so the problem is, is that, okay, let's just say then they're baptized. And the problem with that is that's not being baptized. That's taking a lap around the pool because you want to watch Hannah Montana, right? And so faith has got to precede it. I mean, we have got to be born again, then we get baptized. And so it can become really confusing for you if you're five years old and, and you've raised your hand and then you're thinking later on, well, was that legit or not legit? Or, so here's what I'm encouraging you as parents especially, that you need to clearly talk through, probe, make sure there's an understanding of the cross, of Jesus, of sin, of a Savior, before we throw them in. Or it's just a lap around the pool, right? Okay. So you've got, when do you be baptized? As soon as you place your faith in Jesus, and then here would be the, maybe the next piece of that. And as soon as you can publicly profess your faith in Jesus. So you've got to personally place it in Jesus, and then as soon as you can do that in a public way. I mean, I think this is the New Testament pattern. It is a public identification. That is my king. I am after him. Okay, this is why the Ethiopian eunuch, Acts chapter 8, he gets saved. What would keep me from doing it right there in this public venue? Nothing. Let's do this thing. Okay, so you've got the the identification with the king. 
That's the picture here. So as soon as you place your faith in Jesus and can publicly identify yourself with Jesus, man, jump in the waters and let's celebrate. Okay, so here's my agenda this morning. My agenda is for those of you who are believers and baptized, for you to see when we baptize people in here, for you to see that it is gospel celebration. If there is ever a time for somebody to celebrate as a Christian, I mean, just picture the Olympics last night, right? You've got otherwise sane people going crazy for their guy and their country. I mean, otherwise sane people really need to be locked up in a padded room right there in that moment. And so if there is any reason, any time as a believer to let it loose, it is in the sacred baptism celebration, right? So for us to get a picture of that here, for us to see that it's precious, And then for those of us who have not been baptized, we are believers, but not been baptized. For us to see the picture of, we need to do that. Man, I'm fighting for your joy as you step across the line of faith and you draw a line in the sand to the world. This is where I stand. I want you to have the joy of making your allegiance known. Of of holding up your flag to the world and saying, that is my king. Here is my life. That's the hope. Let's pray. So I think there's probably like maybe one or two or maybe three reasons why you might be in a room like this and call yourself a believer and never have been baptized. Um, reason number one might just be that you're unaware. Like nobody's ever come along and said that this is a necessary thing. This is a good thing. This is an obedience issue. It's hard to take step four if you haven't taken step one. And so maybe you're unaware of that. Totally understand that. I think part of us losing the the precious reality of baptism is just not taught on very often. Okay, but there could also be a pride issue there. So I'm not baptized, not because I'm unaware that it's the first step, but because what will they think, him think, kind of weird, dunking in the, the water, raise out, I'm wet, I'm, yeah, it is. No getting around it. And I'm kind of glad it is. So I think it, I think it proves a good first step there for you. It's a pride issue. So I just want to encourage you to let go of the pride. And let us celebrate with you. And then I think there could be a third issue. Maybe it's that you're not saved. And so maybe that's the first step. And and if you came in this morning and um, you know that you have not stepped across the line of faith, maybe that would be the perfect first step for you. Step two is baptism. So I just want to encourage you in that. In your car or in the guest card, if you would like to be baptized, we're going to do it on March the 7th. If you would like to be baptized, make sure you fill that out. Just your name, number, all that good stuff on there. And just write baptism on that clearly where we can see that. And we'll call you, get in touch with you. And March 7th, we'll bring in the portable baptistry. And this place will be a gospel celebration of what the gospel has done in a person's life. The change wrought by the gospel. And this place will celebrate with you in that. And for those of you who are believers, are baptized, here's what I want to leave you with this morning. Are you living the picture? Are you living the picture? Do you need to be reminded of the picture? 
past, present, future sins are nailed to the cross? Are you living the picture? Is there visible evidence of buried with Christ, raised to walk in newness of life? God, I pray that for the Stonegate family. Lord, I pray that that you would help us be pictures of the gospel in the way we live. God, I pray that you would help us celebrate the gospel in baptism. God, that it would be a sacred celebration in this place. When people are thrown under the water, buried with Christ, raised to walk in newness of life. God, that we would lift up our hands with shouts of joy because of the gospel. God, I pray for that. So, Lord, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for baptism, the illustration, the picture of it. And God, I pray that as we finish this morning, that we might celebrate that picture. As we sing this song, that it's all because of Jesus that we are alive. That we would celebrate the great and glorious gospel. It's because of the cross that we breathe. So God, I pray that you would help us leave today with a mind celebrating the cross. Celebrating the gospel. Jesus, precious name we pray.